You are now listening to the Claim It podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. On this podcast, I have conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me. I like getting into people's life stories, not just the most recent accomplishment, but how did they get there? Because most of the times it's not a straight line. On today's episode, I have Wendy Sanford, and wow, has she had an interesting life. It was an honor to get to talk to her. I didn't get as much time with her as I do with most guests, but I still think we got we got pretty in there. She has a book out called These Walls Between Us, a memoir of friendship across race and class. And she wrote it, but she wrote it with Mary Norman, who you will come to learn who that is and why it was important that Mary was a part of this story. So, you know what? Let's just get right into it. Oh, but but please, if you haven't yet, hit subscribe, leave a review. If you leave a review, screenshot it and send it to me at podcast at yourduologist.com and I'll send you a gift from my product line. All right, here we go. Okay. Hi, Wendy. I'm so excited to talk to you. Hi, Tricia. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited about your new book that just came out, These Walls Between Us, A Memoir of Friendship Across Race and Class. So obviously in this book, you share a lot of your story, but I, I, I want to know, like, what was growing up for you like? That's what I always ask guests, and especially the teenage years, because I feel like that can be a formative time where we're either, well, yes, you're in a much different generation for me, but especially my well, not much different. That was maybe a little rude, but you were in a different. <laughs> no, it's, I'm so, di- we are so different in generation. I grew up in the fifties and I grew up 60s, in the eighties and nineties. I'm 40. So I'm like, I'm like, that was a little rude that I said that. But anyway, like for me, my teenage years in, um, so much like pressure, it felt like on yourself to like stand out and fit in. And what are you going to do with the rest of life? Where are you going to college and stuff like that? So that may have been different for you, but yeah. So what was growing up like for you and especially those teenage years? Well, I grew up in an upper middle class, white suburban family in Princeton, New Jersey. And, um, I, my father came from uh, working class, rural, southern roots, and uh, was quite aspiring to move up. And he married my mother, who was um, very upper class, kind of blue blood, New York, very snooty. And and he 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 really they both wanted to train me to be a white. Well, obviously, we didn't even think in those terms, just to be an upper class woman with um, they taught me about clothes. I mean, I happened to also be really smart. So I got good grades in school. So they were proud of that, but they didn't, they really thought my, my job in life was to find a good husband and um, to be a good wife to that husband. That was my father. Once when I became a feminist, I said, dad, what did you, what did you, what were you thinking? What did you want for me? Uh, because you were so encouraging of my academics, he said, well, we really wanted you to to make a good marriage and find a good husband and be happy. So uh, it was mixed. I saw it was mixed messages. And in my in my teenage years, I was really shy. I was a wallflower. I didn't have boyfriends. 
So, and I was, I was one of those kids who was really smart. And so the boys didn't, no one wanted to dance with me at dances and stuff like that. I was tall and smart and shy. There you go. A great combination. So I think of teenage years, I think we all do in our own ways as pretty uncomfortable. Uh, I did go to a very selective college. I went to Radcliffe, which was part of Harvard, but its own place at the time, which was great. And well, let me ask you a I question gra- so with there. That's, that's yeah, so, the end of my teenage years. So it but sounds when like I yeah, gra- your father yeah. yes. was trying to, you know, like be in this, I am sort of like wealthy, like look what we have sort of, which I feel like even my family, like when I grew up, that's what that felt like that pressure. Like I always felt like we were poor and we didn't have enough, but like really looking back, like, um, yeah, we were a great middle-class family, but to us, it was like, no, cause we're not with these people. These people have a nicer house and blah, blah, blah. And so like, we need to like, there was such a pressure on money, but they, I wasn't cultivated to like be, yeah. You, as you're saying, sort of like wealthy white woman, like upper class, I'm guessing. So like, was that like you're learning manners sort of things in like, yes, yes. That's what, that's exactly. what the word I'm And you have a of. debutante party. That's right. I and so was that's, a it's also debutante. interesting. So, yes. <laughs> um, but then, so you do go to college because it is like, they want you to have an education because right to them, that probably that looks good or like that's attractive, uh, you know, like a bet. Like, did they want you to go to college though? Or no? Cause like, yeah, they did. No, they did. And they, because you'd meet a smarter, right. It wasn't for you to have a career. Like way. you need to go to college yeah, because exactly. you get this degree. It's like, you need to have a college because it's like, ups your pedigree and like exactly and uh, my wifeness I'd be a a smarter wife or something like that yes got it but it left me completely up the creek I couldn't um I I graduated from college and I didn't I really didn't know that I deeply needed to find what work I was going to do in this world um because as a middle class upper middle class woman I got to make that choice I mean so many people come up through just into teenagehood and they immediately have to start working at whatever job, you know, it's like, I, I didn't even know that was a privilege to get to just think what work I wanted to do in the world and to take myself seriously as a working member of society. Um, that was already a privilege uh, that I had, but I hadn't been prepared to even think that. So I got married actually my second year in college. Were your parents so proud of you? They were really happy. I mean, they were happy uh, that uh, that I I married, you know, a good white man who was going to have a good job, who had a lot of money already from his family. And um, they thought I would go live in the fancy part of town, the fancy white part of town. You know, they just um, they probably thought I was all set then. And then I became a feminist and then I became a lesbian. And um I, it was very disappointing to them, I think. And and also, like many well-meaning parents, they wanted me to ha- be happy. And each of these choices felt like a real risk to them. Yeah. Th- that I wouldn't be happy. I mean, I um, I like to remind myself and, and people out there that it's like, it can feel so terrible, but so often our parents and loved ones, they like feel like they're like, limiting us or talking us out of what we want to do or it feels right for us, but it's out of love because they think they're protecting us. Like, right. Okay. Yeah, we need love money and fear. because then uh, if we have like, 
many of us are, yes, marry the this person with this degree and that because then you'll be okay and you'll be safe. Like we imagine everything will be safe if we have this right job and we do this. But it's mm-hmm. like you're never really, and especially if you're not happy <laughs> and fulfilled, then like what is the point? Yes, yes. Um, yes, yes, yes. So, okay, so you got married and then you still, did you continue college? I did. I did. I I graduated uh, Phi Beta Kappa. I mean, I took, I kept doing well and um, I majored in English uh, and most, and I studied all white male writers from the English speaking world. Uh, so uh, I, I changed that a few years later. I realized how limited my education had been and started reading works by people of color almost exclusively for the next 30 years to try to make up for it. Well, yeah, you're yes, ahead I of graduated. the curve on that, I feel. Like. Yeah. Yeah, it was important counterbalance to a very limited education in that way. I'm going to jump back to that. But first, even like, yeah, so if you were raised sort of like, go to college to just attract a husband, but then you attract, you got your husband. So then you still graduated college, but then you were like, oh, I really, when you graduated, were you then like, what am I going to do for work? Or was, and your, was your husband at the time supportive of that? Or was it, no, hello, you're the housewife. Like you do this, like you don't need um, to do anything yeah, with that degree. I, I, um, I didn't, you know, my friends, my upper class friends were, um, uh, joining the garden club and doing a lot of volunteer work and getting pregnant. And I remember my mother-in-law saying, okay, you've been in school enough. You should get it. You should have a baby. So that's what I did next. I was very influenced and I didn't have other work that I, I was aspiring to. It was a, it was a strange time. So when did you sort of start waking up as the term that's coming to me or like start to realize maybe this life isn't for me? Yes. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, so I had a postpartum depression uh, after our son was born and I adored him. Was that I was your first? Very, I, yes, my first child and only okay. child, actually. That's and he's 52 now. Oh, my goodness. Um, so uh, and back then, I that wasn't ha- like talked about probably at all. And it was not at all. I had no words for it. I had no words for I'm it. I'm guessing at all. not much and, support either. Exactly. And my husband thought, well, you wanted a baby. Why aren't you happy? Because he had no education. He he hadn't didn't know about it either. And so uh, he had a friend. He was in architecture school and he had a friend whose wife was getting involved with this group that was talking about women's health. And she told me I should come to these meetings. They were at a local college in the nighttime in a lounge and women were it was it's called uh, women in their bodies. And she wanted me to go. And uh, when you're depressed, you really don't do things that might be good for you. I mean, I just kind of stayed home. So the next Tuesday night, she came and picked me up and took me there. And I walked into a group of people, uh, women, uh, white women, talking about uh, sex. And they were using words I had never heard said out loud. And I was like really quiet. Um, And uh, then we broke into small groups, which I also had never done. It was a pedagogy I didn't know about. And in in my small group in a little MIT classroom, there were these other women uh, and they, they we talked about sex for a while. And then we talked they started talking about postpartum depression. 
I just perked right up and I thought, oh my heavens, this is something. This is a condition that people have. And I learned that it's partly physiological and it's partly the sheer loneliness in in, in certain middle class, upper middle class households where you don't have family around, you're living all in a little house by yourself. Um, the loneliness was also a factor and that it wasn't my fault. And that was so huge for me, Trisha. It was, um, they talk about the feminist aha moment. That was my moment. Oh my heavens, this is what has been going on and it's not my fault. And I was so grateful for that, that I stayed with that group and I'm still with that group wow. 50 years later. Because, and it became a group that wrote a book called Our Bodies, Ourselves, which is a women's health and sexuality book. And I became pretty instrumental in editing it and writing different chapters. And uh, I contributed to the chapter on postpartum depression, you better believe, and many others. And um, really changed my life. It gave me work, which I was, you know, it gave me something I was passionately working on for the next 40 years. And it it helped me understand my sexuality as I, you know, and then the marriage did end. And I think a lot of some marriages ended when a woman became feminist. Sometimes the husband became feminist also among my friends and they, they hammered it out. Who does, who does the dishes? Why am I supposed to do the dishes all the time? Silly things like that, but that implied lesser, uh, lesser value for the, for the woman. And, um, so many couples worked that through and we did not And it was, um, there was so much we needed to know how to fight about and differ about. And we just, it was a fault line between us. And we did get divorced after 10 years of marriage. And several years after that, I started to understand from some of my own thoughts and feelings that I was lesbian, but it, that was long after the ending of the marriage. It wasn't like, oh, you realized that in the marriage and that was the cause. It was- Or fell in love with the woman or something like that. No, no. It took me an agonizingly long time to fall in love with the woman because I kept falling in love with the wrong people <laughs> who weren't even lesbians. <laughs> well, and at that time too, because again, it still can be so hard for people to be honest with themselves about their sexual yes. sexuality because the way that society has, you know, shamed people for it and mm -hmm. churches and all sorts of things. Yes. So true. So back then, how did you handle that? And was it because, you know, like I'm makeup being part of this group for so long, was that, you know, did that feel like, do you feel like you were able to come to terms more easily with your sexual? I don't know if come to terms is the right. The, yeah. That's a, or yes, that, that's a good question. Um, so we were uh, oh, at, at the time a pretty well-known group in second wave feminism. Uh, uh, our book sold lots and lots of copies. And um, uh, when, yeah, did you even talk about, yeah, you're talking about sex, but were you talking about like sexuality well, and gender? None of, none of, yeah, none of us was lesbian. So we had a great chapter on sexuality, but we felt like we needed to find a group who were actively lesbian at the time to write a chapter uh, for the book. But it was and part so of that book or it is part it of that became, book. It became part oh, of like that a later book. Edition, Absolutely. Or a slightly later, still it. very early. And so we found a Cambridge group of, of women who wrote this fabulous chapter called in America, they call us dykes. 
And um, it was very radical talking about women loving women. And they would come to our, our meetings because they were a very strong group and they insisted on that we couldn't edit their work. It was, you know, it was it was very heady times. And I'd be in the room with them and I couldn't look at them because I think I was afraid they'd look into my eyes and see something I didn't want to <laughs> know. I don't know. They were terrifying and fascinating to me. But then gradually, uh, there was a great women's bar downtown called the Saints that I would go to with my friends. And so I'd see I'd see lesbians and uh, I would just start wondering. And then finally, I was I went to hear the poet Adrian Rich speak about racism, actually, um, a very well-known white uh, lesbian poet. Uh, and um, she was talking about racism. And I looked around the room at the other people in the audience, many of whom were these lesbians who I had admired, but been confused about for so many years. And I said, you know what? I'm a lesbian. That I, that just must be it. And I went home that night and I felt so settled. It was so great. And then about three weeks later, one of my good friends who was a, several years younger than me came to visit and for a week. And um, by the end of the week, we realized we weren't just friends we wanted to be lovers and that's and i'm still with her wow 42 years later wow we're, still, we're married so uh that was that transition trisha here bringing you a brief interruption to remind you of all the ways not all just a few ways actually that I love to support you. One, I've got the Daily Inspiration app. You can get it right now. It's called Own Your Awesome. You can get it on the Google Play or the Apple App Store. It has hundreds of powerful thoughts and affirmations to come to any time. You can set a reminder in the app, go to the daily section, and so every day I'll get a reminder to pull the card, to get an affirmation, to get a thought. And people tell me that it works like a magic eight ball. They always get what they need. Love that. I also have products. My favorite product right now is the Daily Connection Journal. It has these daily prompts to connect with yourself because we know journaling is great for us, but yet it can feel like, oh, I'll get to that later. So this gives you easy daily prompts to connect with your root self, reflect and set intentions. And I do have one-on-one -on -one coaching spots opening up for November. I work with people very intimately. We have one hour calls each week, but we're also in communication every single day for the six weeks to three months that you work with me. You get the choice, six weeks to three months. And yes, so we talk each week about what's coming up for you. We set some little touch points or goals, things to be in touch about. But every day I'm checking in on you. Hey, how's this going? How is that? And then you get to come to me. Oh, I'm struggling with this. Oh, this person just said this and it bothered me. Oh, I'm afraid of this. I've got this doubt, whatever it is. I'm there for you the whole way to really uncover what it is that you want and to keep you accountable for that. Not what you think you should want, not what you think you start. Sometimes even people start working with me for one thing and then they realize, wait, I don't even want that. That's just some like old goal that I had. So, so much comes up when I work with people and I absolutely love it. You can check out yourdriologist.com backslash coaching for seeing the options or just send me a DM at underscore Trisha Huffman and I will send you a link on how to learn more about it. All right, let's get back to the episode. 
And um, so now let's get into So yeah, you mentioned you've brought up, obviously, I know, and your book is about a memoir of friendship across race and class. So I know, but yeah, like you've mentioned, oh, I was reading only white male authors and that changed and I shifted only that. And then you just mentioned you were at this speech about racism. So where did you start to become more interested in that? Because, you know, even these days, not all, you know, even people of my 40 year old white women are not wanting to look at that stuff at mm-hmm, now. So mm-hmm. back then, especially again, it seemed like that seems something like, what is this white woman doing wanting to learn about racism? Okay. I had two or three motivations. So remind me that I had two or three, cause I might okay. get so lost in the first <laughs> one, but as a feminist health writer, um, the early second wave uh, feminism had several leaders of color, but the white women dominated and decided the issues. Um, and uh, you've probably read some critiques of early white second wave feminism. Um, and so my group was all white, the Women's Health uh, Collective. We were all white and we knew that and we paid lip service to that. But we wrote these chapters in which we said we women this and we women that as though we as the group of college educated middle class white women could say we and really mean all women. And it was brief because there was a very active, um, a particularly African-American community in Boston called the Combahee River Collective, a group of lesbians, actually very politically um, savvy and aware and just started writing about how limited white feminism was and how much we were missing uh, and how it just reflected the racist patterns of the whole country. And then there was a wonderful group called the um, National Black Women's Health Project that contacted us and we used some of the proceeds of our book to support them, but they totally called us to task about, for instance, we were totally focused, focused very much on um, getting husbands into the delivery room, the right to abortion, which today is in peril and is still incredibly important. But we focused so much on those issues that we we didn't we left out issues that were equally important to women in poverty and women of color, like sterilization abuse. You know, that's still having to do with our sexuality and our bodies, uh, but something that white women didn't run into unless we had a mental disability and some white women were also sterilized um, uh, as part of that oppression. So they were calling us to task on all we didn't know about black women's lives. And I took that really seriously. And that's when I started changing what I, the information I was taking in, I just started on a whole project to read and learn. Um, and the, our bodies ourselves, the book did each time change more, uh, to include groups of women who were part of the incredibly wide diversity of women. So, uh, I was active in bringing in a chapter on, um, uh, body image that was co-written by a group of women with physical disabilities. So that was a, you know, we, we started other, other groups become started becoming uh, involved. So, but the other, the whole other, yes. Okay. That's one. <laughs> okay. So the second one, and I think equally important was that when I was uh, 12 years old, 
uh, as you know from the book, uh, my family went on summer vacation and my mother hired a young woman to come all the way up from rural a rural Virginia, uh, a young black woman, really young, 15 going on 16, to work as a domestic worker for us during the summer. And um, we met. I was 12. She was 15. And we were friendly to each other, but I, the, the whole, she was supposed to learn everything about me and care about my, did I have fun and did I get boyfriends and did I this and that? And I knew nothing about her whatsoever and didn't have much curiosity because my training had been white people are more important. Uh, you don't need to get to know this person, but there was a fondness. And um, many, many years later, she kept coming back. My mother would hire her for that particular period of time because she was so good at what she did. So she only uh, worked for you for the summers. Yes, for a, a few weeks in the summer, maybe three but weeks. But that would or happen. Like that. Yeah. So, so she wasn't with your family year long, but when you no, guys went on your wasn't. summer, when you she went had a whole other career in corrections that she had. Uh, and there's some things in the book about, about her incredibly humane approach to corrections at a time when corrections were really going downhill towards punishment and longer sentences and drug, um, the kinds of drugs that African-American communities were involved in. Uh, African-American people were put in jail for and white people with the exact same things were not put in jail for that kind of thing. I'm sure that's Everything still was, happening yes, today. Yes, exactly. That, yeah, people and that are was, in jail so, from crimes while marijuana is legal <laughs> in some exactly, states. Exactly. So she had a very humane approach to corrections and she was the first female uh, officer in her correction system in um Mercer County, New Jersey. So uh, she, uh, but she would come back. My mother just, Mary was so helpful and did all the hard work on our summer vacation so that this white family could have a good time. And, and my mother was only would, 15 when she started. When she, yes. And my mother would beg her to come back and, uh, and she supplemented her income and helped raise her two children through this work. And it was incredibly lonely for her out there. This was a New England beach resort, all white people. She wasn't even allowed on the beach except to serve her family that she was working for. So she and I started uh, after a, a couple of decades, we suddenly found ourselves more in a similar position. She was divorced. I was divorced. We were both single parents. I was a becoming, I was a feminist activist. She was involved. And so we started talking more seriously. Were you still, yes. so yeah, you're talking like, yeah, at once you get divorced. So at that point, had you become like somewhat friends or was she still like, or were you still like going on vacation at that home? You know what I mean? Like when you're saying 10 I years still, later, I would go home to see my parents for that like and we, segment. Like, yes, this is the week yes, we have vacation. And so she was even doing that, like. 20 years later, whatever she it was. She did it 20 years wow, later. Okay. And, so, and it, it got to be so we looked forward to that was the main thing we both looked forward to. Seeing each other. Like, oh, from I can't this wait visit, for this summer trip. Each other. To, yeah. 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 And so um, we started talking more honestly about our lives. So then 
I had been on this project, as you know, to read a lot of works by by African-American women in particular. And so I had read this book called Coming of Age in Mississippi by a young woman named Ann Moody, who'd grown up in under sharecropping and Jim Crow in Mississippi and wrote in great detail about it. It was just a really amazing book. And um, I was just it made me think of Mary or wonder about Mary. And so I lent it to Mary one summer um, and she stayed up all night reading it. And um, uh, the next morning I asked, how was the book? And she said, Wendy, that book was my life. And in that moment, I realized I thought I knew Mary and I knew nothing. And that was a turnaround for me in understanding how much more I had to learn about her and how much more I had to listen to her instead of her listening to me. And we began to visit each other, you know, separately from my family. And we began talking on the phone and writing letters. And um, after a, a few years of this, she said to me, Wendy, we should write a book about our friendship because no one would believe this. And, um, so that we set out to do that and uh, it didn't turn out the way we planned um, because she actually was working three, three jobs at a time and um, didn't have time and didn't, was, didn't think of herself as a writer. And um, I did. I'd majored in English. So I launched trying to write this book and it took the reason it took so long. Uh, is well, two, two or three things. One is it took a really long time to get to for Mary's voice to be more and more in the book. And what really helped in the end was texting. Because if we were on the phone and I was asking her questions and I'd write it all down, but texting, I got her, she would share stories and opinions and thoughts that came in her own words via text. And I would copy those down. And so the book got stronger with time. Another is that each time I thought the book was done, uh, I'd learned something else from some other movement around white privilege or the whole movement to understand the, the wealth gap and how it was uh, engineered by federal housing policies after World War II. There's a whole learning about that. And then the Black Lives Matter movement. And so each time I thought the book was done, it wasn't. I'd have to say, I'd have to realize it wasn't done. And then um, we'd incorporate more of that. Then I started incorporate the, incorporating some of the books, my teachers in print, who had helped me uh, then I began to realize how many mistakes I had made in the friendship as I became more educated about white privilege uh, and white dominance, things that I did in the friendship that were um, clueless and hurtful. So each time I learned, the book got deeper. And um, finally, she turned 80 and I turned 76. Now she's 81, I'm 77. And we thought, you know what? This book could keep changing, but we aren't going to be here much longer. So Sorry for laughing, but like that's a good way to be like, okay, we need to. We're done. We're done. Which really could be for any of us, do. no matter what your age is. You don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> so maybe don't hold on to things for so long. <laughs> exactly. So we're done with it. And we've launched it out and we hope that it will. Um, we hope that black readers will find that it's trustworthy and authentic. 
And we hope that white readers will take it to heart and will read our story and think about their own stories and think about what are the things I'm not seeing? What are the things I'm not I'm doing that are hurtful that I don't even know it? Uh, how might I be an obstacle to interracial friendship? Yeah. And even I love how you, uh, I know I saw in the book, but I think you also just said it as sort of like realizing maybe that like how you weren't being, hadn't been curious about like her and her life. And like that, that's often things like that's something I definitely noticed last year with the Black Lives Matter movement. And I'm like, you know, like reaching out to the black friends that I have that I think whatever and was realizing like, oh, yeah, you know, like I do know, you know, I know background and we've been through so many things. But yeah, like ways that I realized I never really talked about racism and how that could affect them because of my own Mm -hmm. discomfort with white privilege. It's sort of like Mm -hmm. knowing that Mm -hmm. I had privilege, but if I acknowledged it, then that meant something, whether to myself or to them. So that these places (laughs) that I had- Exactly, so the silence. Yeah, so like that I didn't get into those things or even like a friend of mine noticed, like, do you remember that time that I told you, like I went into that juice shop and that they treated me and you sort of like, I told you about it and you like didn't like say, you kind of like didn't have anything to say back and how hurtful that was. And I was like- oh, I'm like, I think, you know, I don't even know, actually. And I might have even said, oh, are you sure? Or like something like that, like something, even that. And, you know, and it, you know, it wasn't that I didn't believe her. It was just more my discomfort with, oh, I'm a white person. Like I would have to acknowledge that I actually have privilege and how uncomfortable that would, I made up, it would make them uncomfort, discomfort, you know, if I had asked anything yes, about racism but it was really you. and them yeah. being, you know, and like their experience of being discriminated against, like I made up that that would make them uncomfortable, but it was really my own incom- discomfort. And, and, you know, and it was creating, it had created something in our friendship that I didn't know existed. But, but yeah, like that's that they beautiful. somewhat keep you yeah. at, you know, it's like as much as these people love me and they know that I'm, you know, there for them and that, that, that there isn't a deeper level of trust perhaps because I can't own that part like you know it's not and they weren't also trying to engage me in it probably because they saw how like oh let's steer the correction this way and so right let's talk about the weather <laughs> oh that happened yes. in the juice shop well do you like your juice or like I don't know <laughs> yes yes exactly that's such a good example and so I'm hoping this book will give people some tools for noticing those things uh and uh and learning enough about racism by reading about it, reading the the African-American and other women of color and men of color who have written, taken the time to write about it. So we don't have to ask our own friends to use their precious time to teach us about racism. That's different from your experience because she needed you to acknowledge what was really going on. And you just felt suddenly um, too shy or too uncomfortable to do it. But um, that the, the reading is an important step towards that understanding. Right. Educating ourselves. But then like, yeah, what I was feeling like, it's okay that it, it's not even okay. Like it probably means something to them to ask like, oh, how about their experience with racism? Not like I'm teaching, educate me, please about racism in the world and stuff. But like, oh, you know, what is like, yeah, like wanting to hear more about their experiences personally. But then, yes. Yeah. Like the juice shop. Like, what did that feel like? And what did they say to you? And has that happened before? And or just even be like, that's so shitty. I can't, you know, that 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 happens. Like like actually acknowledging it and that I couldn't at that time years ago. I was like, yes, yes. 
So also, I love so much that you wrote this with Mary, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and was that for you from the start, like something that sh- if I'm writing a book about, uh, you know, I know you wanted to write about your, re- your friendship, but also just bringing up race, especially, did you always know she has to be part of this? I, as a white woman, cannot write a book about race or Oh, so I wish I'd seen that earlier on. We did a division of labor in which uh, I was the writer, uh, so-called, and she had no discretionary time. And uh, we she for a while, we tried a taped interview and I gave her some tapes and a tape recorder and she just didn't have time. Right. Well, I just mean like even her contributing. I'm saying so I'm saying. I assumed that I, as a white person, could write our story. Oh, you did early on. Okay. Yes, for early on, I did. And that was part of the learning eventually. No, you can't write our story. All you can write is your own story. And that it turned into my story of understanding all the obstacles within me to being a dependable friend. And the other goal of the book is to really lift Mary up and to honor her and to um, respect her story, but not to pretend that it's coming through anything but my own white lens. Got it. Yeah, because that's definitely with, you know, everything that happened last year there, I, you know, I was very one of the the white author who had written a book about white privilege, you know, was on constantly on the New York Times bestselling list. And I would keep seeing black people like, no, you need to learn about racism from black people and how like that was then creating more strain from people like, well, but I, mm-hmm. whatever. And so, yeah, when I saw your, when I first got your book and I was like, oh, I wonder like, is this okay? Where does it fall? Is this yes, okay? But yes. I was like, well, it's a memoir. She's writing her story. And also that Mary is a part of it. Like, even if you're the one writing that you, you're clear. We co-created. We I want to read you a quote that's at the beginning of the book is short, but it's it speaks to this. So there was an uh, an African-American man, very active in the civil rights movement named Reverend James Lawson. And here's what he wrote. Unless the white community breaks its silence and determines that race is not a peripheral issue, but an issue central to the things we say are valuable to America, the finest movement in the world will not cause racism to cease. So I think both what you were saying, both both things are true. It's white people can't um, teach everything about racism, but white people need to be much more upfront about our participation in it, the ways that we, uh, we learn it, the ways that we act it without even knowing it. Uh, the, the systems that we don't challenge, that we need to challenge. So I do, I value the teaching of um, Robin DiAngelo may have been the person you, you're talking about who's written some, re- it's like, she's really studied white people and sees where we need to, um, uh, uh, and some white people can hear from her. Black people have really studied white people for centuries in this country because they've had to, and they have a lot to tell us about our racism. Uh, I think we learn, need to learn from both. We need to have white people saying, uh, uh, just as uh, uh, James Lawson says, we need to take it seriously and talk about it among ourselves. And we need to learn uh, from, from people of color, particularly African-Americans who've, uh, were stolen and taken to this country um, and built 
the wealth of this country and have shared in so little of it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like whoever gets your attention to start thinking about things differently or to actually like put your attention on the racism that still very much exists and is great. But then, yeah, like I very much agree. Okay. Yes. Then also go educate yourself by black people. Yeah. It was such an interesting thing. And even like with the black lives matter, I was like, okay, now mute yourself in this and whatever. And it was like such, what are we supposed to do? Okay. We care in this. And it was just sort of like, I ended up like posting the posts on social media. It was like, okay, I'm, and then like six, five, a couple hours later was like, no, like, fuck this. I finally started speaking up about it. Like I'm not. So, and it wasn't sharing, you know, posts from black people and black writers and black activists and stuff too, but also using my own voice because with the hopes I was like, well, that's what I've always done with my platform is hopefully my thoughts <laughs> make other people think. So it was this balance of, okay, can I use my voice and be elevating and directing people to these black racism educators. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and what you share is ways that you are changing and learning. And that's very important for other white people to hear. Oh, well, I think this is so amazing that you put this book out in the world. And I, yeah, we, I know we have a short amount of time because you're talking to all sorts of people today about the book. <laughs> I am. But yes. yeah, I am super intrigued by you and inspired by you. Um, I usually ask people more questions, but to wrap up, I'll just ask you. Oh, you know what? I really am out of time. Yeah. I feel like I've got my pumpkin just became a pumpkin again. <laughs> I have to get on someplace else at 1220. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're late from <laughs> this one, too. But so thank you. I just thank um, you. last question. I just want to ask, um, what is something that you do to up your joy levels? Uh, well, I love my dog. Uh, I, I, I just cuddle with my dog, you know, in the pandemic, she's at home all the time and I'm home all the time. And my partner, Polly, and I were just, that's the first thing that comes to mind is not that inspiring, but no, but that is, go. it's the little stuff. I love hearing yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so, Thank so you. much. Okay. Bye. Wow. So interesting, right? I hope you enjoyed that. And again, her new book is These Walls Between Us, a memoir of friendship across race and class. Um, for full show notes, you can go to yourjoyologist.com backslash podcast, and you'll find all the episodes there. And if there's anything else you want to know, feel free to send a message. For all things me, I'm at underscore Trisha Huffman. And at Claim It Podcast, and I still have at Your Joyal just for my product line. Go get some shopping in. Holiday shopping. Whew, it's already that time of year. And I don't know about you, but I don't like waiting till the last minute, but yet that's what I often do. <laughs> so go ahead, check out the products, get your holiday shopping in. Um, and yeah, feel free to send me a message, share the episode. Send me a DM if you're interested in working in with me at underscore Trisha Huffman. All right. Uh, last thought of the day. What are you claiming for yourself right now in this moment? <laughs>